Scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all, live, all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, how good it is to be your people. A God who is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Great is your faithfulness. You can be relied upon with everything that we are. Help us to believe it. Because of who you are and your character and your goodness and who you've shown yourself to be for us, would it give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? And I want to pray for those in our congregation who are battling various types of pain Pain can be such a detriment to our spiritual health and our emotional life. So I pray that those who are suffering, that you would give them special grace, be near to them, that they might be able to see beyond it and still exhibit the fruits of the Spirit even though they feel terrible. Would you help them to bear under this trial well? Being reminded of the fact that outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we can be renewed day by day. God, we're thankful for the recommendation of a, of a pro-life supreme court justice and we ask that she would be confirmed and you would turn the tide in this country you would overturn Roe v. Wade and you would prepare Christian families and churches to foster and to adopt that we'd be ready do that work among us at Southside continue to raise families up pray that you would encourage those that are already doing the good work and God as we turn to your word in yet another passage that is so much at odds with the air we breathe, would you give us resolve and conviction to follow you, trusting you, knowing that you know best. The world is passing away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. May we believe it in Christ's name. Amen. Great to see you. We're walking through Genesis. If you're new, we're just going verse by verse, basically through the first three chapters and last week we saw, we focused on the man. We saw that Adam was created as the first prophet, priest, and king called to cultivate and guard and expand the garden temple, taking dominion for the glory of God and the good of others. He was called to rule. He was called to subdue, multiply, and fill the earth. But so far, it's just Adam. So that whole deal about multiplying and filling the earth is going to be a bit of a challenge. So let's consider this morning, number one, Adam's aloneness. And the number two, the creation of the woman. So first, let's look at Adam's aloneness there in Genesis 2.18. Let's read it again. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, if we're reading carefully so far in the story, this should actually stick out at us. Do you remember all those goods that we've seen so far? God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. In fact, seven times so far, we've seen that God saw that it was good, indicating that he would do a work, he would accomplish a task, and he would step back and say that it's good, indicating delight and indicating completion. But here we have the first not good of God's good creation indicating that the creation of mankind is still incomplete. It's not good that man should be alone. Just as a side note, our culture really is down on marriage, isn't it? I mean, just think about movies. If you watch any rom-coms or chick flicks, how rare is it that marriage enters the movie? Isn't it interesting what's lacking in today's film and media usually the climactic moment is not the marriage it's not even sleeping together usually they've been sleeping together a long time before they finally say those words I love you that's usually the climactic moment isn't it so twisted it's so different than where we are here in the scripture and so media has been discipling a generation to view marriage negatively to disciple them away from the goodness of marriage and so now we look at it and we have these jokes and we delay it in fact I saw some stats this week that were not that surprising, but in 1960, the average man was 22 when he got married. The average woman was 20. You know what they are today? For the man, almost 30, and for the woman, almost 28. And so we're delaying it and postponing it. And how folks are staying pure as we delay is another sermon for another time. But my point is many today say that it's not good to be married. It's the side note. God says it's not good to be alone. And God wants Adam to see it. He wants him to feel the problem of his aloneness. Adam needs to be made aware of his aloneness. And so God delays his provision. You see, God is the author of romance. And so he is building the suspense here. So before providing the solution, what does he do in these verses? He parades all the animals before Adam. Brings them all before him. And he charges Adam to name the animals. Wouldn't that be fun? And listen, God knows the names. God could have just handed Adam a dictionary. Remember the way God works in the world, though. He works through the people whom he has made. He works in the world. God works in the world through us, through his image bearers. Remember what Luther said? God himself milks the cow through the vocation of the milkmaid. The man is called to subdue and order God's creation on his behalf. God didn't need the help. He desires the man to be at work. And Adam probably started strong. Elephants, orangutan chameleon porcupine porcupine just means thorn pig I like that one horse horse is hippos river potamos river horse hippopotamos crocodile the mustached puff bird pelican a wonderful bird is the pelican his bill will hold more than his belly can 
But then he just gets tired probably and starts naming things based upon what they do. You got your hog, your pig, your bug, your fly. What he's doing, he's bringing order to the world. He's having dominion over the creation just like God had asked him to on his behalf. And Adam sees all these pairs, sees the he lion and the she lion. And one's larger and it has this large mane and and one is smaller but sleek and glorious. And the he-bear and the she-bear and the he-brontosaurus and the she-brontosaurus. All around him, he sees paired differentiation. And I just wonder how many pairs he saw before something awoke in him. Wait a minute. Something's not right here. All around him, he sees distinction, correspondence, melody, rhythm, unity, And diversity, but what does it say in verse 20? But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, in our therapeutic age, we probably read this with certain lenses and we think, oh, poor Adam was lonely. Well, that's not the main point here. The point is not so much his loneliness, it's the fact that he can't fulfill the purpose God had given him, right? Look at chapter 1, verse 28. The first line of the human job description God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, how can he be fruitful and multiply and subdue and rule? The primary problem of Adam's aloneness is not his loneliness, but his inability to fulfill the task. All by himself, he's going to be unproductive and unfruitful. The man needs help to subdue and rule. Multiply and fill. And God wants his people to exercise dominion over the earth, but that's going to require more than two people. That's going to require many, many descendants. It's not good that Adam is alone. And so, what does God do here? He does what he does He freely gives. We have the creation of the woman. Look at verse 21. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. How gracious of God. Remember, zoom out. He could have done anything he wanted. He created from nothing. God had absolute freedom to do anything he wanted. The world could be gray and taste like oatmeal and have one gender. But he provides a man and provides a wife for the man, his greatest earthly gift. And so he puts him to sleep. I like to think it was the first chokehold. <laughs> Go to sleep, Adam. I don't want you messing this thing up. I don't want you taking any credit. You just lay passively by while I graciously and freely and sovereignly provide a sweet gift. I'm about to bless your socks off. And from the man's rib, God forms the woman. Matthew Henry famously said, woman's not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Makes the woman out of the rib, closes it up like a good surgeon when he's finished. And God calls the woman a helper. He forms the woman to help the man in the mission. He says it twice. Look at Genesis 2:18. There at the second half, I will make a helper fit for him. Or verse 20 there at the end, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. 
And so not just a helper, but a helper fit for him, corresponding to him. It literally means according to his opposites, matching him. There's this divinely designed complementarity between a husband and a wife. They are counterparts, quite literally, physically. And so we see distinction. The man will help the husband. The wife will help the husband, excuse me. But also correspondence fit for him. Now, listen, we just got to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Feminists hate this verse. And they hate a whole lot of other verses as well. And feminism is the air we breathe. And it's infected the church in a whole host of ways because of that. Friends, the most dangerous worldview out there is the one that we don't realize we imbibe. And feminism has been destructive. It's not been good for women. And it really lies at the root of abortion and of the LGBTQ movement. So much of feminism really at its heart is an attempt to separate a woman from her body. It's the rejection of God-given biology. First wave feminists like Stanton and Sanger, what they wanted was sex without kids. They wanted freedom from their bodies. They wanted intercourse without the dreadful consequence of motherhood. And so that's infected the church. And many Christians today are embarrassed about passages like this, embarrassed by what the Bible teaches about gender roles, which shows how we've been influenced. But God commands us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We are counter-cultural. And so we want to be people who let the Bible, Scripture, not culture, shape our thinking about this issue and all issues. And listen, do we really want to follow our culture on gender? where we have men entering women's restrooms and we have men winning the Texas State Girls Wrestling Championship and where we have Glamour Magazine naming Bruce Jenner as the woman of the year. No, no, it's a dead end road. Let's own what God says. Listen to what Jesus says. For whoever's ashamed of me And of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So we must not be ashamed of the words of God, even when it's so politically incorrect, even when it's mocked by contemporary culture. God's way is best. God's way is clear, but God's way is countercultural. And culture hates this call for wives to be helpers to their husbands. But listen, they also don't understand it. This is not a demeaning term here. The way this word's used in scripture, it's one who brings strength. It's the helper is one who provides what is lacking. One who can do what the man alone cannot do. This is a beautiful picture. She will complete and supplement and complement him. This is about her essential contribution, not some inadequacy. She's going to bring strengths and gifts and proclivities that will benefit the man that only she possesses. In fact, God is often called a helper. Very same word in scripture. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so Genesis 2 is a, it's a really important passage for a number of reasons, but specifically about gender roles. And gender roles are very controversial today. And we're talking about gender roles, we're talking primarily about in the home and in the church. And within the church, there are two views on gender roles. And I I want you to know about them. Complementarianism 
is over here. It's the view that both men and women are created equal in essence, both the image of God, but have complementary roles, different callings. It's what the church has believed historically. Here of more recent innovation is what we can call egalitarianism, or maybe you could call it evangelical feminism. And the idea is that men or women are created equal and there are no distinctions, no differing roles in the home and in the church. And there is just a whole swath of scripture that has to be set aside to adopt egalitarianism. God has clearly created us complementary, equal in essence, but different roles, not different from each other, but different for each other. Not competition, but cooperation created differently for different purposes with different strengths and different natural orientations and both vital. So we're Southern Baptist Church and all Southern Baptist churches are complementarian now. Some are embarrassed about it. We're not here. And I love the way the statement of faith that we hold to puts it. I want to read it to you. It's a little bit long, but we'll have it on the screen. Listen to what we say about the family. The husband and wife are of equal worth before God. Since both are created in God's image, the marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. This is all from Ephesians 5. She, being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. So this really is a, it's a watershed issue on will we take God at his word or not? And the reason it's a watershed issue is because it's just so clear in the Bible. If we can put aside what the Bible teaches about gender roles, we can put aside what the Bible teaches about anything. And so that's why a recent book on this issue had the subtitle, it was Evangelical Feminism subtitle, The Path to Liberalism. Because if you can take away the teaching on gender roles, you can make the Bible a wax nose and make it say whatever you want, which is what we see. Again, Christians used to be on the same page on these issues for the whole history of the church. It's only in the last 50, 60 years with the rise of feminism that if people went back to the Bible trying to reread it. But it's a different day, guys. I just want you to know, people do not like me and this church because of this issue. And it's going to be harder and harder to be a Bible-believing Christian in this culture and even in this city. I read a study this week that among evangelical Christians... So you've got, you know, Christians, and then you've got your evangelical Christians, which are those who take the Bible seriously. Bible-believing Christians, 22% deny that God gives gender. 22% believe of evangelicals believe in gender fluidity. And so if one out of four doesn't even believe there is a binary gender, I shudder to think what the stats would be among evangelicals who actually think there are two genders and God has distinct callings on those two genders. The key differences between complementarianism and egalitarian, it really is the issue of male headship. The word head comes from Ephesians 5. The husband is the head of the wife. Ray Ortland defines male headship helpfully this way. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man 
bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. And so here's really one of the hubs of the issue. Is male headship God's goodwill before sin entered the world, or is male headship a result of the fall? We, a complementarian church, believe that male headship is God's good design before the fall. Egalitarians believe that male headship is a result of the fall and is therefore to be jettisoned. Maybe in a future sermon, we'll show all the reasons. In fact, I've got 12 that male headship is, a, is before the fall. But let me just mention the three that are right here in this text. First, in our verse, we see that the wife was created to help the man come alongside him, strengthen him. Second, we see that the man was formed first. Up until now, it's been only Adam. Paul finds this significant as he's teaching the church on how it ought to be ordered and gender roles in the church. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. These verses are hated today. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Footnote, those who advocate for female pastors make this verse say the exact opposite of what it says. It's not a small thing. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Then he gives us a reason. Why? For, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's the created order. It's filled with significance. Third, God formed the woman from the man. And again, you say, well, big deal. Well, the New Testament helps us out. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's just talking about Genesis 2 as a helper. So men and women created equally have differing callings and different roles. Equal in essence, different roles. And we should see it just by the very way God has made us. Even the, the very word in Hebrew for male hints at outwardness. And the, the Hebrew word for female hints at inwardness and receptivity. I don't want to get crass, but just consider our anatomy. Men are oriented out to the world of things. Women are oriented inwardly to the world of people. So our very... Anatomy and biology, it's stitched into our very beings. The man comes from the ground. The woman comes from the man. The man has an immediate relationship to the world of stuff, dirt, work. The woman is primarily directed to the world of persons. And in the first instance, to her husband. The man's made from the earth. The woman from the man. Man brought to the earth. Woman brought to the man. The man is charged to work the earth. The woman is charged to help the man. Man's formed from the ground and for the ground. This is why from the earliest ages, you stick a boy and a girl out on the field. What's going to happen? A little two-year-old boy is going to dig in the dirt. A little two-year-old girl is going to make, make a doll out of a stick. <laughs> the woman is formed from the man for the man. He is to tend the garden. She is to tend him. He's oriented to the task. She's oriented to him. So we saw last week, the garden is the man's job. This week we see that the man is the woman's job. And remember, this is all before sin. This is all before the fall. This is Genesis 2, not Genesis 3. 
His primary, and these words are important, his primary calling is to work. And this week we see that the woman's primary, not exclusive, but primary calling is the home, helping him fill and multiply and rule and subdue. Her primary calling is her domain, her people. When we think about the home, it's a lot more than four walls. It's a household. So right off the bat, let me say, this does not mean a woman should never work outside the home. Everybody hear me? Does not mean that a woman should work, should never work outside the home. But what scripture is clear on is the focus and the priority should be the home for a married woman. And if there is outside work, it should be for the benefit of her people, not to the detriment of her people. See the difference? I wish we had time to go to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is this vision of this godly woman where we see this industrious, high-achieving, high-earning woman of God. But her kids and husband don't lament the fact that, that she's never around and that they're having to fend for themselves. Her children and her husband in that proverb praise her in the gates. They rise up and call her blessed. So the primary focus, not exclusive focus, is homeward. And it can look different at different stages of life with different situations. There's all kinds of caveats and exceptions and different ages of children and whether or not they're in school. But what we need to hear from God's word is man's chief orientation is out to work and woman's chief orientation is homeward, especially when there are littles. And this is really confirmed in the way sin affects a man and a woman. It affects us differently. There really is no generic mankind in the Bible. There's men and women. And even how sin affects us, it affects us differently in our primary roles. Flip over to chapter 3. Here we have the consequences, the curses. And notice how it affects the woman and then notice how it affects the man. Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So notice the way it affects her primarily as a mom. It affects her childbearing. And that's not just giving birth. That's the whole process. It's hard now. Parenting is hard. And then in her relationship with her husband, her desire now will no longer be to help him, will no longer be to follow him. But now because of sin, her desire will be against him. I'll show you when we get there from the words used there, it's actually a desire to rule over him. And then as a consequence, what's he going to do? He's going to rule back. And so now we have this battle of the sexes where instead of following, she tries to domineer. And instead of being a godly leader, he gets harsh in his response. Mother, wife. Then look at verse 17. What about the man? And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you and pain you shall eat. Thorns and thistles by the sweat of your face. And ultimately the ground's gonna dominate you. You're gonna end up six foot under. So the primary domains, not exclusive, but primary domains of the man and the woman are affected. We'll look more at God's call on singles next week. But we need to see that this call to prioritize the home 
is in the New Testament as well. This is why we know it's not a part of the fall. It's reiterated in the New Testament. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. What does Paul tell young widows? What would you tell young widows they should do with their life? He says, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Pretty clear, right? Very unpopular today, but pretty clear. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so part of what young women need is older women who can teach them to be moms and wives. Home workers is what this verse says. Again, primary, not exclusive. Focus. And again, the culture just denigrates this noble calling. But friends, the culture knows nothing of the plan of God or the power of God or the wisdom of God. In fact, it's against it. There is no higher calling than motherhood. The calling of a homemaker is a glorious calling imbued with cosmic significance. You notice that in both of those passages I just read, women are positioned to defend the honor of God's word. This is far from menial. This is far from a waste of potential. Oh, I can't stand when people use that language of homemakers. I saw a study this week showing that stay-at-home moms, with all that they have to do in their omnicompetence, works never over. They're worth, according to this study, about $96,000 a year, and that didn't even mention education. So listen, don't believe the lie, moms, or future moms, of just a homemaker. Don't believe the lie of just raising immortal souls. If God calls women to focus on the home, it cannot be menial. It must be filled with significance. It must be a hugely meaningful task. Husbands, if your wife is working, but she desires to be at home, you need to get a plan to make that happen. It may mean some downsizing. It may mean a five-year plan. It may mean some radical changes. But better a flourishing and grateful home in a trailer house than bitterness and regret in a massive home. So again, it's not wrong for moms to work outside the home. But listen, Christian moms need to be thoughtful about it. That's the thing. We need to have reasons. We need to be principled. We need to be thoughtful and not just go along with what everybody else is doing, not just go along with the culture because the culture is heading that way. Between 1975 and the year 2000, so that was 20 years ago, right? Between 1975 and the year 2000, the percentage of kids under six years old with working moms rose from 33% to 70%. That's a pretty significant increase. And so just ask the hard questions of yourself. That's all. Focus. Am I able to focus? Am I able to prioritize? Is the home flourishing? Why am I working? If it's to keep a certain high standard of living up, that's probably not the best reason. If it's because you don't like being at home with your kids, that's on you. Raise kids you enjoy being around. Christians need to have principled reasons for doing what we do. And so work through it, talk through it, pray through it, ask the hard questions and persevere. 
Follow the Lord. God calls wives to help their husbands. It's not based on the presence or absence of giftings in particular areas. Heavens no. This is just about God's calling because he knows best. It's about his wisdom. And so men, this means you need to be men who are easy to follow. Husbands, be a man worth following. Get your act together. Pursue the Lord. Pursue godliness. Fight sin. Be the chief repenter of your home. Come up with a plan. Come up with a vision for your family. Where are you taking them? Give direction, steps on how you're going to get there. Inspire them, affirm them. Work hard. Never be hard on your family, but be hard for your family. So he creates a helper fit for him. Look at Genesis 2.22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last, got to think of Eddie James every time I read this. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God brings the woman to the man, the creator introduces the couple it was love at first sight the very first recorded human words in the bible are a husband adoring his wife the first poem of scripture god is the author of romance he says she shall be called woman isha because she was taken from man ish so finally he has his helper no more bears and lion and sheep and not she's like me but with some agreeable differences And the man would see the woman and think, she came from me. And the woman would see the man and think, I came from him. And so the man is therefore compelled to revere and protect that woman. And the woman is compelled to protect and respect and trust the man, which is exactly how Ephesians 5 sums up the call. What does he say to husbands? Let each of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love and respect, security, and significance. God knows what he's doing. So church, for marriage to flourish, and ultimately then for societies to flourish, husbands and wives need to know their roles. Not only know them, they'll love them because we love God. It's like a dance. You can't just figure it out as you go. Each needs to know their movements. Who will dip? Who will catch? Who will stand? Who will run? Each has distinct movements, and the beauty of the dance is each knowing and mastering and loving their role. So zooming out, man and woman created in the image of God, called to multiply, called to fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion on behalf of God. And so we need to remind ourselves of the significance of marriage. If you're married, then you tend to just kind of get rocked to sleep by the normalcy and regularity of it. Don't do that. Remember the mission of marriage. Marriage was created by God to provide companionship in the labor of dominion. Building families, building culture. Parents and grandparents are culture makers, culture changers. Taking dominion for Christ by establishing and building godly families. Listen to the way Rebecca Merkel writes it. If God is good, and if he wants us to subdue this planet... And if he wants us to obey the Great Commission 
and conquer this world for Christ, and if he tells half the human race that they're in charge of tending the home, it follows from this that the home is actually one of the most strategic and important tools by which the world will be won. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. In fact, this word helper is often used in the Old Testament of military aid. And that's how stay-at-home moms, moms of littles, you ought to view your calling. The home is a battleground. It's a battle station. You're raising up people who will go and live for the Lord in everything they do. That's why Psalm 127, speaking of the blessing of children, says they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. And so God creates the world. Then he tells his people to fill it and have freshly sharpened arrows who will go and extend the boundaries of the garden temple, filling the world with his glorious presence by ruling and subduing on his behalf for his glory and for the good of their neighbor. Let's pray. God, we want to have dominion for your sake. We want to be used by you to see people submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ for his glory, but we also know it's for their good. And so would you give us favor as we seek to work and rule and subdue? Give us favor as we seek to be helpers, helpers either of husbands or even helpers of, of other people, bringing blessing to wherever you've placed us. Give us favor in our homes. Give us favor in our workplaces. Give us favor in our neighborhoods. God, I'm thankful for the, the many godly wives here at Southside, and I pray that you would give them favor, give them fruit. Pray for moms and grandmoms. Use them for your glory. Put a bunch of soft, receptive, open hearts in their sphere. And God, encourage them, especially in the hard, long, thankless days, encourage them with the, the grandness of this vision. Be honored in our lives, be honored in our songs. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.